Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. All last week, the prohibitive frontrunner for the Republican nomination for president deployed his signature strength of acting like a jackass and getting away with it. Donald Trump showed up in the courtroom for the second defamation suit brought by E. Jean Carroll and proceeded to thumb his nose at Carroll, the judge, and for good measure, the jury. He repeated the defamation of Carroll in out-of-court press conferences and then finished the week with an awkward mental lapse, blaming his Republican opponent Nikki Haley, whom he apparently confused with Nancy Pelosi, for the events of January 6th. But there was no way to deny Trump's electoral dominance. He racked up a decisive victory in Iowa over both Haley and Ron DeSantis, whose once promising candidacy appears to be on its last legs. And the endorsements of relatively respected members of the Republican Party, like Senator Tim Scott, began to roll in, while exit polls suggested that a large and growing fraction of his supporters continue to buy into the big lie of Trump's having won the 2020 election. Trump's outsized influence on the Supreme Court looked poised to pay more dividends as the court considered a case that had the potential to unravel decades of administrative law and transfer swaths of authority over important aspects of U.S. citizens' lives from Congress and administrative agencies to federal judges. To analyze the rapidly moving parts in the legal and political systems and assess where they leave the campaign and the country, I'm really pleased to welcome three great returning guests, prominent commentators and talking feds stalwarts all. And they are David Frum, a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of 10, count them 10 books, most recently, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. He's been active in Republican politics since the 80s, and he served as speechwriter for President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2002. He also chaired the prominent center-right think tank Policy Exchange from 2014 to 2017, and he spoke perhaps the most pithy and memorable line in Talking Feds history and a free Talking Feds mug Uh, For anyone who identifies it, you can just uh, use the questions line. Great to see you, as always, David Frum. Thank you. Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large at The Bulwark and its founder and director of Defending Democracy Together. Bill founded the Weekly Standard in 1995 and edited that very influential magazine for over two decades. He, too, served in senior positions in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. He's the host of the excellent video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. And Bill, I want to add, having just listened to it in preparation for this, there's the Bulwark podcast that you do with Tim Miller. That's a weekly thing as well, which I think is really becomes essential listening as we come into the campaign. Is that a whole separate Crystal product? That's a whole separate product, and we've just been doing it a few weeks, and I'm glad you've discovered it, and thank you for the kind words about it. Good to be with you, Harry. It's excellent. Okay. And Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. Congresswoman Scanlon represents Pennsylvania's 5th Congressional District in the House of Representatives. 
She serves on the House Judiciary Committee, lucky her, and the House Rules Committee. Prior to her election in 2018, she served as an attorney at the Education Law Center and as co-chair of the Voting Rights Task Force of the Association of Pro Bono Counsel. A pleasure to welcome you back to Talking Feds, Congresswoman. Thank you. All right, let's start with the defamation trial, the second one, brought by E. Jean Carroll against Donald Trump. Unlike the last one, Trump attended most of this one, or has so far, we're in the middle, and he still is rattling sabers about testifying. We'll see. My vote is no. Uh, But he subjected the courtroom and the country to a remarkable display of immaturity and petulance, doing everything short of shooting rubber bands at the judge. But, you know, he went to the trial when he could have gone to New Hampshire events. Obviously, he appalled everyone who knows courtroom etiquette. But on his own terms, what kind of week was it for Trump? Those events in court are kind of um, an inkblot test for Trump watchers to test your basic theory of the kind of human being he is. So some people will look at that behavior and see obviously a very nasty and vicious but fundamentally rational actor who took a risk in a courtroom in order to make a political point in hope that it would do some good for him on the campaign trail. Other people look at it and say, this is proof that Trump is actually fundamentally not a rational actor, that he is subject, he has impulse control issues, he's subject to oppositional defiance disorder, and he just, even though it may cost him a lot of money, he could not control himself. I'm not going to give cast a vote at the moment as to which of those theories I think is right, but understand that's what we're talking about. No, totally fair. I mean, do we go to the DSM-5 here or political analysis? I think that's right. And it's just so, as someone who's been in a courtroom, it's, it just makes you cringe to see someone acting that way in front of a judge, in front of a jury, knowing that it is not going to advance that case, but frustrating as well, because anyone else would have been tossed from the courtroom. Of course, anyone else wouldn't have so much incentive to act like a complete idiot. There is this weird dynamic where like a mistrial, which is normally you're risking, would be just ducky for him. Yeah. Well, he seemed to be courting it when he kind of taunted the judge to toss him. I mean, I think he's a combination, I think, of the two aspects that David mentioned. He's a kind of cleverness and self-interest, and he can be pretty disciplined in pursuing that at times. And in other ways, he's obviously got personality issues and impulse control issues, and he's a narcissist and all kinds of other things. They're not mutually exclusive. There have been plenty of people who've done a heck of a lot of damage to the world who were psychotic narcissists, but also pretty clever about acquiring power and exercising it and being an effective demagogue. And I kind of think that's what he is. And in this case, I mean, the big story of the week, obviously, is that he won Iowa by 30 points, not, not the court trial. We'll get there. Sort of, yeah. I know, but I'm saying, so the notion that he had a bad week because he, right, right, right. you know, some stuff that was not on television, really, in some courtroom in New York, I think is a little dubious. And I'd also say, look, I mean, He's been very clever over the years, I mean, decades of being a con man, if I can say this honestly, of staying out of court, buying people off, intimidating people. And here he found himself in court, and he's already lost one case, and that's the second. I don't quite know, in a way, from his point of view, what was he going to gain by being more polite, a a lower judgment on punitive damages, which in any case might get reduced and on appeal. Does he care at this point? He can raise so much more money than he needs to to pay that judgment in about an hour online. Whereas he does get some benefit of, of perhaps getting a mistrial or perhaps discrediting Ms. Carroll or, or doing whatever he can to appeal to his base. I mean, I could argue it either way. My only thing is, I think it's a big, generally speaking, 
whether or not he's got all kinds of problems in his personality and character and psyche, it doesn't make him less dangerous. I guess I'm not saying anyone said that. David didn't say that. But it, it's there are some people who are kind of so into ridiculing Trump that they forget that he's an extremely dangerous character, however badly he handles himself in court for a few hours in a civil trial. Just to comment on that, I mean, this too is consistent with the political genius theory and the DSM-5 theory. But Bill, for your benefit, since you're the non, the one non-lawyer on the panel, when you're in court and people do those stage whispers and whatever you you know, that's pretty jerk-off behavior. But the guy got up and strode out of the courtroom at the end of the day before the jury stood up. That's just like, <gasps> I don't know, like reading a 19th century novel and you're stunned by the terrible, oh, he didn't ask her to dance and we're in the 20th century here. But still, I, I do want to report that, man, that's about as bad as it gets. Yeah, you're sort of in Downton Abbey land there, David. Yeah, it's totally true, right? It's a <gasps> I'm just going to say this, knowing nothing about this, never thank God having been like in that situation in a, in a, in a civil trial or anything, and not being a lawyer, or as a defendant or a plaintiff or anything. I mean, people are asked about that. So, well, he's a former president of the United States. He doesn't have to sit right, in for right, some right, 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 jury, right? I mean, it's the degree to which the courtroom, I mean, the very important and defensible and important to a civilized society, rules of courtroom behavior, I'm not minimizing them, the degree to which they don't necessarily have, you know, political impact beyond is, we, we shouldn't forget that. I have a question about something Bill said that, and you may know the answer to this. Uh, I certainly don't. Can Trump raise money to pay a punitive judgment. I, I know that he can raise money and, and there are ways that legally he can shift that to pay legal fees and there are ways he can do it illegally. But can he actually pay a punitive judgment with money that is raised for some kind of campaign purpose or will he need to set up a Patreon or something like that? I think it's an FEC issue. There might be something special about punitive damages. He has a legal fund and an election fund. Then he has all these sharing agreements with 90-10 split between the legal. I mean, it's right. really unbelievable what he's getting away with. If we had a functioning FEC, he might not, but we don't. So, Especially when you consider that's his only income generation, right? His whole business model is bankrupt. But it is a good point, David, because something's wrong with the punitive damages model if you can just mint money with a couple hours of fundraising. Right. And certainly that's addressed like insurance companies won't pay punitive damages because it's a punishment. There's always an explicit requirement for that. Just going back to one thing you were talking about, was this because he has no impulse control? Was it actually more Machiavellian? What I think it did go back to his performance there is his undermining of every pillar of civil society and democracy, whether it's court decorum, whether it's the press, whether you leave office when you've been voted out. But it's just more of that same disrespect for the things that are supposed to keep civil society together. Is that his appeal or is his appeal that he does that and gets away with it? Because, you know, he is this, in a way, a kind of like 12-year-old fantasy of transgressing rules and not paying the price, which he's certainly done so far. Let's just focus for a second on the person at the center of this, E. Jean Carroll, who's really been in the ringer. Alina Haba, Trump's lawyer, got, I think, properly castigated for doing a really lousy job. There were points she could have scored that she didn't. But E. Jean Carroll, how did she come off from this second traumatic week, but this one actually in the presence of her former assailant? Did he succeed, again, maybe in the popular mind, you know, in making her seem unsympathetic. 
it's an impossible question to answer because we are in the realm of those philosophical brain teasers where the person who can cure cancer is tried to the railway track and there are three orphans <laughs> in a streetcar. Look, what a competent lawyer does in a situation like this is takes a big bucket of icy water, throws it in the face of the client and says, if you ever speak about this again, <laughs> yes. uh, next time the buck, I hit you with the bucket. I just throw the <laughs> pail of water in your face and uh, I'm going to go into that room and you're going to sign the paper and this is going to cost you some money, but it'll be only single millions of dollars. Um, which for you won't be much. And that's it. That's like that's what a good lawyer does. Now, the problem is, so when you're dealing, when you're Trump's lawyer, you can't do any of those things. So what do you, like, when someone says, I've, I've lost this case on summary judgment. I've already been adjudged $5 million of damages. All I have to do to not pay $100 million or 200 or five, who knows what it's going to be, is glumly accept the outcome and sign the paper and pay the check and, and not look back. Like, how does a lawyer deal with that? I think we all know it was Mike Murphy who said in the 2016 campaign that teaching Trump to behave responsibly is like teaching Charles Manson to Foxtrot. He can do a step or two, but in the end, he will put a pencil in your eye because he's Charles Manson. <laughs> well, I think in some ways you're right. I mean, a, a lawyer is going to tell a client who's, who's lost the summary judgment to behave and settle this thing and get out of it. But that's not how Trump litigates. He never has. He's always going for the longest possible game. And he fires the lawyers who tell him the truth, which, yeah, and gets the Alina Habas, who he met at some party or something, yeah. Right, but he tortures the opposition. He just keeps going and going, and often they go away because it's just too expensive to keep mm -hmm. going. Now, he's in a slightly different field here, and he's got people who are principled and worked up about this case, and they may just keep going toe-to-toe. David, let me come back to you, because after the first trial, you, you tended to doubt it would move the needle at all. So I just wonder, let's say there's a plaintiff's verdict with a very big punitive damages component, you know, a 10 million compensatory and up to 100 million. I, I think constitutionally it'd be hard to go much bigger. Would that move the political needle at all? Or do you see this as in the class of cases that Trump haters you know, we'll jump up and down about, but it's not really a factor in the broader country. I just want to be clear what I mean when I say things move or don't move the needle, which um, yeah. the theme I keep coming back to is there was a saying in 2016, LOL, nothing matters. And I always disputed that. I thought, no, it's not that nothing matters. It's that everything matters. There's just a lot of everything. And so there's not going to be some aha moment where the villain is unmasked and that's, the, as we now know, the one in that movie, The Face in the Crowd, the Elia Kazan movie about the demagogue, the, the one untrue scene is the ending, where the demagogue says something disparaging of his viewers on the camera, and that's it. The America wakes up and realizes it's been had. As we now have seen, that might have made a little bite out of the guy's career, but it wouldn't have done much damage, because there's this cumulative weight. I, I mean, all, what has to happen for America to be saved, we have to move about four or five points of public opinion in the presidential election and one or two points of opinion to elect a House of Representatives that will stand by America's allies instead of betraying them. And that's it. I mean, you don't have to get your crazy uncle to say, you were right and I was wrong and I apologize for wasting everybody's time at Thanksgiving. You just have to. But it's this giant mass. I think we should think of this as like one of those, I forget which non-American sporting event it is where the people form the line and like push and shove back and forth and nothing seems to happen until until the line breaks. <laughs> red Rover, Red Rover. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. I don't know whether it's rugby or New Zealand football or one right. of those games. That's that's what this is. It's a contest of mass upon mass. And so 
every one of these events adds, if there were bad economic news, that would a little, add a little mass to the pro-Trump side when there are these decisions that adds a little bit of mass to the anti-Trump side, but it is a contest of mass upon mass. No one single event is the breakthrough event. It is the cumulative weight of people saying, this is too much, including a lot of people who may like Trump and still think, ah, that, that was one thing too many. I need a break from this. Obviously, my colleague Sarah Longwell and I, we took quite a, tried a lot to move those two, three, four percent of swing voters. And I think we did have some success in 2020. And I think it is true that they don't like the kind of classic Republican-ish, much more willing to excuse Trump than any of us on this call, but still made uncomfortable by aspects of his behavior. This is another aspect of the behavior that adds to the scale in some way and maybe makes a little difference. On the other hand, I mean, it's still appalling how little difference it all makes. And I mean, so as we speak on this, record this on this Friday, on the 19th, Tim Scott's about to endorse Donald Trump. Tim Scott, who's a decent human being, I know him, uh, Mary Gay certainly knows him, you know, and senator from South Carolina. And I, anyway, he's going to endorse Trump in New Hampshire just to make sure that Nikki Haley doesn't get the upset that she probably won't get anyway, but she has some outside chance at, and outside chance that therefore, uh, if maybe not beating Trump, but at least creating some speed bumps for Trump on his way to the Republican nomination, and which is kind of important to create as many speed bumps as possible, kind of for the reason David said. Every primary where there's a chance to vote against Trump means a few more people will be accustomed to voting against Trump, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, Tim Scott, just for political reasons, is going to endure. That tells you everything, right? Tim Scott watched that, is, is aware he was busy keeping the government open. He wasn't, he wasn't really busy keeping the government open, but he was busy this week in Washington, I suppose. But um, nonetheless, it didn't deter him. So, I mean, I just, the degree to which people are not reacting to things that what 10 or 20 or 30 years ago would have been just, a, they would have been appalled by. And the degree to which, and he's not going to be criticized. And even the coverage of him today, I was just annoyed having read some stuff online. It's all very kind of understanding. Well, maybe he'll be the VP pick. And, you know, he didn't really get along with Nikki back from South Carolina in 2010. And Scott, so, you know, he has ambitions within the Senate to maybe move up. McConnell's going to move on. And you got to be kind of pro-Trump these days to move up. There's no sense of this is really bad. This is terrible. You are one of the 49 Republican senators. You're one of the very few people in America who has some chance marginally to affect what Republican voters think about Donald Trump. And no one's saying, he, I mean, I would have said he should support Nikki, but no one's even asking that. Just stay out of it, you know? But he's got to affirmatively go up there and those precisely the wavering voters that David mentioned up in New Hampshire are going to see that. They're not going to know much about Tim Scott and maybe not many of the we move, but there's sort of a little bit of, okay, you know what? It's okay to be for Trump because look, I, there was this kind of annoying story out in New York. It looked like it behaved kind of badly, but here's a respectable senator who I saw earlier in the campaign who seems like a decent human being. And he says, it's fine to be for Trump. So what's the problem? I mean, the degree to which the Republican establishment has the, the price we're paying for their pathetic, preemptive collapse and acquiescence to Trump is really great. Enough of my rants. You guys can go back to talking about the law now, but I'm just, yeah. No, no, no. It's so true. <laughs> Look, actually, this is the best segue to story number one, and let's use it. I do want to say we've got a really uh, high bar going now with Downton Abbey, Aliyah Kazan, Jane Austen. I think we should all really try to keep it up and get a lot of really good, you know, distinguished references in there. So where to start? I mean, you framed the whole meta issue of the the week and the year. Let's go down a little bit to some of the details. Okay, so huge victory. I mean, you, you called it, I think, a landslide, Bill. Let's keep with Trump. Did he do better, worse, or about as expected 
and uh, are his odds of being the nominee different from Monday morning before the caucuses? It would have been better if he had gotten 48% than 51%. It would have been better if Haley had gotten 21 and Susantis 19. She would have had second. But I don't think it changed much. The good news is, you know, 51% in a low turnout Iowa caucus isn't so terrific for someone who's kind of quasi-incumbent. Incredibly low, right? We're talking 100,000, very, very few. 30, 40% lower turnout than 2016. So it's not like, I mean, it's, it's apples to apples comparison there. Uh, to you know, same kind of caucus rules and so forth. Worse weather, I guess. The bad news for me is the polls were basically right, actually, in Iowa, which suggests that the polls are kind of right nationally, maybe. And basically, 60% of Republicans at this point are for Trump. There was a lot of campaigning in Iowa, which knocked that down to 50, because there were you know many, many more ads against him than anyone has seen anywhere else in the country. And New Hampshire is a less favorable landscape for him in terms of the demography of New Hampshire, so to speak, and also that undeclared independents can vote and are accustomed to vote there, and there are a lot of them. Uh, but I talked to someone who does this you know, kind of stuff for a living. If you just transpose the New Hampshire electorate to Iowa and assume the natural split, so to speak, is 50 to 20 at this point, which is the 50%, 20%, it probably is more like 40, 30, 41, 29 in a kind of – in New Hampshire with the differences in numbers of evangelicals, more into – more independence voting, a little higher, edu better educated and younger state. And that's kind of what the polls are showing now in New Hampshire is kind of Trump plus 10-ish, 10, 12. And I wish Nikki has more. I hope she can get momentum over the weekend. That happens sometimes in New Hampshire. Uh, but there, to Trump people, this is where his, despite being a crazy person in many ways, the campaign has been pretty disciplined and pretty effective. And rolling out the Tim Scott endorsement tonight, Friday night, before the New Hampshire primary is not nothing and is pretty well done. And they kept it kind of quiet. And now it's totally is going to dominate the news cycle, at least until Saturday. And final point, I think Nikki, the insurgents who tend to do well in New Hampshire come behind tend to be risk takers and sort of real, you know, they can really grab the spotlight. McCain's the greatest instance that I was close to John. So, I mean, that's for me, that so memorable in 2000. But even Gary Hart in 84 against Mondale, if you want to go back to ancient history. Haley's been running as if she has to keep, she's like doing okay. And she has done well. I mean, she had a pretty, of all the candidates, except for Trump, she had the best 2023, I guess, right? But she's sort of cautiously hanging on to a decent second place instead of really giving the sense of urgency and drama. And I'm going to do eight town halls and I'm going to debate anyone any night. And I'm renting a hall and I dare Trump to show up. And here's a whatever stunt you want, but something to kind of give, convey the sense of drama and urgency. That's really not her style. Yeah. Clinton 92, right? All Everything's on the line. You actually uh, said that you didn't see this as a death knell for Haley, uh, but, you know, she was third, and we maybe even get to the fairly weak candidate who was second. I wonder if Mary Gay and David see her as actually in the mix, or it's just a sort of temporary stay on the stage. What? I did see after Iowa was more of the collapse of the last standing Republicans, people falling in line. And, and I found that disturbing, you know, the, as a show of momentum or whatever. What I really liked about Iowa is that two of my rules committee colleagues, Chip Roy and Tom Massey, spent the week out there. And so we didn't have them in the rules committee. And our meeting was about two hours shorter as a result. <laughs> You had a very myopic week, didn't you? I did. I did. <laughs> yes. Let me broaden it a little, David, to is either DeSantis or Haley 
you know, going anywhere, including to vice president. I, you may have seen a story where Trump allies are warning him against Haley, etc. Or is this their last hurrah? The fact that we're talking about Haley at all is a remarkable statement about what happened to Republican hopes. And because Haley, Haley was never anyone's idea of a real plan. The real plan was Governor DeSantis, governor of you know, one of the most important states in the country, backed by, what, $200 million? Backed overwhelmingly by Fox News. There, there were two years there where Trump could not get a phone call into Fox News while um, DeSantis was depicted as the conquering hero of all Republican hopes. And the complete collapse of that campaign. Driven, I think, above all by, uh, I mean, one would like to think it was driven by the stupidity and smallness of his issues that, you know, you're running. But actually, it seems to be driven by the repulsiveness of his personality, where you're the governor of Florida and you run for president and you can't get members of your own state legislature to endorse you. Neither senator from your state endorses you. It turns out that no one in Florida likes you. And there was this line in Politico that said that uh, Trump has announced that Jeff Rowe, who was the campaign manager, will not be considered for a role in the Trump campaign. And I reacted, yeah, because he can't be re uh, reached for a comment on his yacht in the off the coast of Belize. I mean, they have this is like the biggest transfer of wealth from gullible Republicans to unscrupulous operatives, maybe in the history of the world, bigger even than the Jeb Bush campaign. But what happened there? So, so now, now, we're, now we're scrambling for the plan. And as everyone has said, the idea that you would take Nikki Haley, the most dutiful, obedient, non-risk-taking person, say, you run an insurgent campaign. Is punctuality important to the insurgent campaign? No, not really. You know, is penmanship? Penmanship, neatness. I mean, she's a, a person with great talents, but her talents are not. I want you to go into that bear cave and wrench the baby from the bear's grip and save it while everyone cheers. That's not her. She, she would, well, I'll certainly organize the baby rescue committee. Uh, <laughs> happy to do that, chair the committee, do the fundraising, but I'm not going in and facing the bear by myself. No way. I think it's going to be difficult for a woman to run an insurgent campaign, given the constraints that they have on the campaign trail. Just tossing that out there. Really? You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that a woman would ask, because she could say, I'm more different. I'm more unusual. I, I'm already a different kind of Republican. Right. They haven't been that supportive that different type of Republican, though. You know, one of the things I, I always feel, in, in, and this is maybe revealing here the story of my personal life failures. But could you align it with some classic work of literature? Surely. <laughs> Whenever in my life I've had to make a big bet on something, I've always thought, okay, if I lose, how do I want to lose? Why do I want to lose? And I think this applies in politics, too. That In every and every, most political campaigns fail. So if you're going to lose... When you look back on it for all the many years of your life afterward, you want to look back and say, you know, I lost. I said the things I wanted to say. I behaved in a way that I thought was appropriate. Um, I treated people the way I thought they should be treated. You know, I certainly made the best case for what I believe. And that's what is really lacking is that, that when this campaign is over, both DeSantis and Haley will, will look back and say they, they lost in a way that they will never be able to be proud of. I mean, I think this goes down the middle to... Bill's comment about Tim Scott and, you know, people who will be falling into line. But the big figure that we've left out so far is the electorate. One of the findings from the polling in Iowa was about two-thirds of the voters, these are believed President Biden wasn't legitimately elected in 2020. Fewer than one in 10 Trump voters said Biden's win was legitimate. How is it happening that the Trump false narrative seems to like be not just stable but 
encroaching, advancing on rank-and-file Republicans. That, when you think ahead to the general, is, is a really foreboding development, it seems to me. But isn't that part of the same? I mean, that's part of the Kevin McCarthy's and the leadership not leading, letting Trump control the narrative and then backing him up. I mean, it's bad. The two-thirds are very bad. The two-thirds of Republicans believe in the big lie. On the other hand, he's Trump's been pushing it for three years, and in some ways you could argue for seven years. I mean, he pushed it before against Hillary Clinton, remember, in 2016, and, and equivalent lies, let's put it that way. And I always, you know, the voters are, are not good on the Republican side, to be honest. They're at least, now, incidentally, bracket this, I mean, on David's point of the, in a general election, it suggests that there's some number of Republicans who are available to be gotten for a Democratic presidential nominee against Trump because they're uncomfortable with certain key aspects of Trump's message and, and, and persona, such as the big lie, not just trivial things on the side. But again, the elected officials, a majority of Republican senators and a majority of Mary Gay's fine Republican colleagues in the House have endorsed Trump. Now, now, not in 2016 when he was a businessman, he was a loudmouth, he was a jerk, but I mean, come on, we need to shake things up a little. Not in 2020 when he was an incumbent, what were you going to do? After January 6th, after everything, after the indictments, after E.G. and Carroll, whatever you want, after all these things, they're happy, they're out there, they're endorsing it before a vote was cast, or in the case of Tim Scott, after, you know, a few votes were cast in Iowa. I mean, it's hard to blame the voters. Everyone, they look up and it's their member of Congress and their senator right. who's endorsing Trump. It's really, the, the, again, the, the, the capitulation to him has just been appalling. Sounds like both you and Congresswoman Scanlon find most deplorable the uh, reaction of Republican elected. Is that fair? I find that, I mean, having been in the Capitol on January 6th, seeing members who were sworn in three days earlier on the same ballots that they were then saying should be thrown out because Trump said they should be thrown out and who since then, you can always tell the ones who know better because they don't say the election was stolen. They say, well, my constituents have questions. <laughs> You know, so they just yeah. they just skirt around it, and it's it's really disturbing. And and to see in the last couple of weeks all of the House leadership, kind of one after another, maybe led by the gentlewoman from New York, who also has some ambitions here, it's tough to see. Representative Scanlon alluded to Elise Stefanik, uh, who worked for me. I was chairman of the directly for me, but on a, on a, on a foreign policy project. I was chairman of it right after the Bush White House, which she had worked in and been. I knew her. I helped her a little bit. Her first campaign in 2014. She was a moderate, forward-looking Republican, supported by people who wanted to move on, kind of, and and, and read or orient the Republican Party to the 21st century and all this. And I remember when she switched, basically in 2019, really during the first impeachment. And I remember friends saying, God, I can't believe Elise is doing that. Just going to ruin her, you know, ruin her future. I mean, it's embarrassing and stuff. And at the, I already had learned enough at that point to say, I don't know. Are we confident that this is going to damage her? Are we confident? And here she is, right? Number three or four in the House leadership. I think a leading candidate to be Trump's VP. And she's paid a tiny price in terms of respectability in some circles, but not that many, actually, honestly. You know, I mean, it's so there's been very little price paid for being a pretty abject Trump apologist, excuser, sycophant, is really striking to me. I remember just one last, I mean, when Sarah Sanders was White House Press Secretary, I guess that was 2017, right at the beginning, right? And she was the one who was making up the crowd sizes. It was just embarrassing, right? And I remember people, I knew people who knew her from Republican circles before that. And she was kind of, you know, okay communications person. And it's like, God, can you believe Sarah's doing this? And now she's governor of Arkansas. People have done well by being on the Trump bandwagon. 
there's a ton of money, there's a huge amount of institutional support, there's a huge media ecosystem, and we shouldn't kid ourselves. That's what makes it dangerous, incidentally. You know, if it were Trump and a few wackos sitting around. And then the establishment capitulates, and so then they have the kind of core people who are with Trump, and then they have a whole lot of hangers-on, who establishment types who give it a certain veneer of respectability. This is why it's so dangerous. So we all know the stories of how when an authoritarian system arises, there are all these people who before the system seemed like normal politicians, and then they end up working for the worst figures in human history, and you think, how could that happen? And that makes you very pessimistic about human nature. But let's flip it. Let's look at the bright side. When authoritarian regimes collapse, there turn out to be all kinds of people who used to work for the authoritarian regime who make perfectly respectable public servants in the new reform system. Because the fact is, most people aren't very brave. Most people aren't very principled. Most people like material comfort. And most people have very quiet consciences. This is the optimistic one. (laughs) (laughs) If you can build the structures of your politics right, you can elicit a lot of good behavior from people who, in other circumstances, would demonstrate bad behavior. Not to make an overly dramatic example, but in the 25 years after the creation of the West German state, that you would consistently unmask one after another respectable member of West German society had been a former Nazi. Well, even former Nazis can go on to become loyal servants of the West German state. So when and if we get out of this, we'll be amazed at how many people who are very respectable figures in politics 30 years from now uh, started their career as, you know, bouncers and bully boys for Turning Points USA. And then they'll, if we can create a society where they can go legit, they'll go legit. Yeah. The trouble with the system we're in now is even if we beat Trump, let's just, if I can say we, you know, if, if, if Trump loses in 2024, it'll be by four points, five points. Presumably the House will be close. Maybe the Democrats will take it back. Maybe they'll win the Senate. If I see, we haven't had the decisive, we haven't had 1945. We haven't had the Nuremberg trials. We haven't had denazification. I mean, we need a crushing defeat to have the outcome that David is totally correct. I expect, and to my colleague Jonathan Lass has said this over and over, but if there's ever a decent Republican Party and conservative movement again, we're not going to be the ones everyone says, oh, that's great. You guys come back and be part of, be key parts of it. It's going to be the, the bouncers for Turning Point USA who have kind of cleaned up their act. And it's going to be the Tim Scotts and people who've sort of accommodated, but kind of get away with it. And then they're okay. And it's going to be all of Representative Scanlon's colleagues in the House who have kind of kept quiet and kept their heads down and are decent human beings. And I've, you know, Tom Cole, I've known for 30 years and Mike Gallagher, I helped at the beginning and they're not privately like Trump, but they certainly haven't, you know, stood up against him. It'll be good for the country if we have a Republican Party led by those people. But you still, to even get to that, I think you need to have a really crushing defeat of Trump and Trumpism. And that's just, we haven't even come close to. I just had a really interesting conversation with Dan Applebaum. There was a, you know, surprising victory of the Democratic coalition over the autocratic party that had been in power for some eight years in Poland. But they remain. So there's, we, this is definitely in the we should have such problems category. But if uh, the four or five point victory happens, there will still be, you know, the Stefanics and maybe even the Donald Trumps of the world who are sticking around and have, are able to command some of the same people, maybe as many. Let's do a, a close out here. I think about this and I tend to be sanguine, but I think it just might be my constitution. But I, I think, okay, who really is the guy or woman who voted for Biden in 2020 who will say, now in 2024, uh, you know, I'm going to vote for uh, Trump? And I found hard to identify. But part of the exit polling 
We think of the you know non-college ed- educated white crowd, but he's getting more of the college educated, including you know with some people in the Republican race who you could imagine appealing to them. That struck me as worrisome. I wonder why that would be happening. I'm always thinking of it more in terms of people just being exhausted that Biden voters, we came out, we tried to stop this once, we tried to stop it twice. You know, nothing's working. I'm tuning out. So I don't know where that plays into things. College students, let's look at history. (laughs) Four years ago, they were, you know, worried about going to the sophomore prom or something at high school. So I, I do think talking with folks is important just to help them know what's at stake. Well, I mean, Representative Scanlon comes from a state where Josh Shapiro, Democrat, won the governorship by 15 points mm-hmm. in 2022, admittedly right. against a particularly bad Republican candidate, but even so. Yeah. And Democrats did, did better down ballot. Michigan, obviously very similar. They actually swept everything in Michigan. Fetterman won by uh, you know, not even that close a race at the end, right? And so, I mean, it's hard to disentangle all the different things, obviously, that are going on. The good news is I think the right Democratic candidates with the right kinds of campaigns there's an anti-MAGA majority in the country. It's not as big a majority. As of course, there always has been. The question then is how many grievances and problems and missteps are there by the anti-MAGA majority or by the particular candidates that are put up or just unfair, fair or unfair and being an incumbent creates its own problems as opposed to being a challenger and so forth. I do think, I mean, Biden is just not a strong candidate and being an incumbent's tough. And I was in the George H.W. Bush White House and he was a good president and people get tired of it and you blame me for a lot of things and you're the incumbent. And he wasn't a good candidate, particularly just a good president and and you lose. And so I, I worry a lot about that. I mean, the truth is the same economy, Whitmer and Shapiro, who were both, in, was an incumbent and Shapiro had been AG for what, eight years, right? I mean, they were kind of incumbents. They seem to survive, you know, inflation, but Biden gets blamed for it. Maybe it's communication skills. Maybe it's, I don't know what, you know, but he's done a fair number of things pretty well. He has the approval rating of someone who, you know, with interest rates should be 12% and we should have lost three countries to communism by now. We haven't done as much in Ukraine as I would like, but we're still done the right thing. And the Republicans want to do the wrong thing. And I don't know, they just seems to get no credit at all. So Jimmy Carter. Yeah. But except with a good record. Biden has all the problems that were pointed out. Presidents have to be, in the mod, since the invention of television, since the collapse of the old complex party systems, presidents have to be their own advocates. That wasn't true in 1880. It wasn't even true in, in 1940, maybe, but it's true now. And if the president, for one reason or another, um, can't be his own advocate, and Biden really is, seems unable to be his own advocate, and maybe he never was good at that, and he's less good now than he used to be, um, then his case goes unadvocated. I mean, it is it is weird that I salute John Kirby for his incredible work, um, and he has been very eloquent on a cause that is very close to my heart, which is the defense of the state of Israel's right to defend itself. But no one voted for John Kirby. I mean, I would. Maybe someday somebody will. I hope they do. But as yet, no one has. So he is the person who is out there every day, and, and the president is, is absent. And, and it really matters on Ukraine. We are heading toward the 100th day of the House Republicans embargo on Ukraine aid. President Biden asked for his package on October 20th. We just passed the 100th day of the captivity of the Israeli hostages and Speaker Johnson brought a candle, which is always a thoughtful hostess gift. But really, if you can write a check for $13 billion and you bring a candle, what kind of guest are you? I think it's January 26th, will be the 100th day of him saying, how about a candle, Israel? And how about not even a candle, Ukraine? 
And meanwhile, this thing says, and where is the president? I mean, where would Ronald Reagan be? Where would Bill Clinton, where would Barack Obama, he could be very effective. He didn't necessarily move public opinion, but he would be out there every day hammering at these people and hammer them in a rough way. The thing that the Republicans hate most is when you say you're doing Putin's bidding. And maybe they're not literally doing Putin's bidding. Maybe Putin hasn't bid, (laughs) but make it uncomfortable. They're telling people false stories about Zelensky's mansions in Palm Beach. It's the Trump family that has the corrupt, you know, foreign donated mansions in Palm Beach, not, not just the head of the family. Go after them. But, but, but Biden can't do it. And so these things get unsaid and it, it matters in a presidential year. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we break out the three types of vodka to see if there's a clear difference. Vodka is typically a colorless, flavorless spirit, served neat and freezer chilled. Simple, right? But long before the shot glasses are topped off and toasts are shouted, there's a fermenting process. For vodka, that process involves distilling an organic base like barley, rye, wheat, even potatoes or corn to make one of three types of vodka, plain, flavored, and infused. Rye can add a heavier texture and spice. Barley may be a little lighter and mild, while potatoes can add a creamy mouthfeel. Unflavored is the simplest and most traditional form of vodka with a mixture of 40% ethanol and 60% water. Flavored vodka has recently become extremely popular, adding flavors that range from fruit to dessert-inspired options like chocolate. A charcoal-filtered vodka provides a smoother taste, perfect for creating a chocolate martini that tastes as great as it sounds. Lastly, there's infused vodka, also known as botanical vodka, where the distillers infuse the vodka by adding ingredients like herbs, flowers, spices, and fruit which are steamed into the spirit during the distillation process. It's an excellent choice to dial your drink in any flavor direction you want. The best part of them all is that you don't have to travel the world to find the greatest vodkas. Your local Total Wine & More has a large selection of every type and flavor, so all you have to do is clear out a little extra room in your freezer. So find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, much more about Biden and Ukraine coming in the next few weeks. I wanted to just spend a few minutes on a, you know, it's one of these classic Supreme Court cases that are very picayune, arcane in the facts, but could have huge consequences. And that's the case uh, that involves the potential overruling or, or huge scaling back of the Chevron uh, doctrine. And I guess I wanted to start with you, Bill, to get your sense of why, even though you're the one non-lawyer here, because Chevron, which has been the paramount administrative law case for over a generation, I really, you can't overstate its importance, was originally championed by Republicans in the mid-80s. I remember an influential article by Judge Ken Starr. And now it's on the hit list, and, and you think that if they do overrule it, it's going to be champagne time again at the Federalist Society. What's the status of the Chevron doctrine, and why is it 
fallen into such bad regard among purist Republican thinkers. So I was a you know grad student in political science and did a little con law and a little actually amazingly took an administrative law course. I don't quite know what I was thinking at Harvard <laughs> Law School because uh, I, I was interested in sort of in the in, well, Jay's interesting more theoretical issues of separation of powers and the administrative state and the kind of serious issues. And my teacher was Richard Stewart, who I guess was ended up being extremely famous. I didn't know I was just a twenty four year old kid, you know, yeah. I mean, administrative law and environmental expert, and died pretty recently, I think. So in those days, conservatives were for judicial restraint. Chevron is a judicial restraint case. And is you got to let these, you know, if Congress passes vague legislation, the agencies have to interpret it. If Congress wants to rein them in, of course, Congress can. It's just statutory interpretation here. But meanwhile, the courts do not have the expertise to do this. We can't have random district judges or even appellate or Supreme Court justices just kind of trying to second guess factual determinations about the right standards for emissions from some coal plant or whatever, you know, as... But that was the kind of conventional wisdom, I think, in the mid-'80s, 84, when Chevron came down. And that's why I think it was kind of almost a unanimous court, incidentally. Chevron lost the case. Like they, they get their name on the case. But, of course, the EPA and the Natural Resources Defense Council, I think it was, won the case against Chevron, which also puts the lie to what Justice Gorsuch was just saying. About, well, the big guys, Chevron just lets the big players win. You know, really? Chevron lost into the Chevron case. I mean, anyway... Long and short, originalism, which I was friendly to at one point, turned out to be a whole the doctrine where judges get to invent their own version of history to overrule administrative agencies. Conservatives are now in favor of that, and so they don't like Chevron. I mean, there were some legitimate questions. I think Scalia did change his mind about it a little bit over the years and so forth, and didn't he say a few things in, in the early, uh, 2010? And, but I think maybe it could have been narrowed down a bit, but... Uh, yeah, the hostility to the administrative state has gotten so out of hand, and I say this as someone who, I think like David, had a lot of, you know, kind of free market complaints and still do about agency capture and, you know, all kinds of regulatory issues, but fine, let's address those through Congress and through legislation. But the idea that the courts are now going to be liberated to kind of randomly decide things at the district court level, incidentally, is not a good thing. I don't know. Does everyone assume you guys follow this more closely than I, that the Supreme Court is going to basically very radically redefine or reinterpret uh, the standards of judicial oversight and, and the Chevron doctrine? At best. I'd like to believe that this is more complicated than the Federalist Society says when Republicans win a lot of presidential elections and don't and aren't powerful in the judiciary, we agree the president should make regulatory policy. And when the Republicans can't win presidential elections but do dominate the judiciary, we think the judiciary should make regulatory policy. I'd like to believe it was more complicated than that. But, you know, I don't think I do. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of similar efforts coming through. Um, I sit on the ACAL committee, so we've seen a lot of bills coming through Congress kind of talking about the hostility towards the administrative state. I mean, every argument starts with these unelected people are controlling your lives. But then we end up with these bills where we have members of Congress who are auto dealers and lawyers, God forbid, who want to make policy about how many parts per million of a certain chemical should be in our drinking water or what kind of drugs we should allow to be sold in the country or just, you know, all these super technical things. So just as a matter of having a functional country, we can't fall back all of this. It's just impossible. Convulsive shock to the legal system is how the SG put it. I think Kagan made some very good points here that you're just taking expertise out and why would you do that? Okay, uh, we'll see how that goes. But in answer to Bill's question, yeah, I think it's uh, Chevron's in, you know, big trouble. 
we just have a minute left and a great and too fast conversation, but we can still do our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener. Each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And today's comes from uh, Trump's uh, tour de force in the defamation trial. We saw Trump acting like a spoiled delinquent third grader this week. If you could go back in time and say or do anything to the third grade Trump, what would you say or do? Five words or fewer, please. How about, here's a library card, Donald. (laughs) Okay. Perfect wording. Okay. How about, leave the United States, Donald. (laughs) You shouldn't torture that kid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that would have been very effective. And I'm on the crystal plan, too. Uh, a little more specific. A loving family in Russia. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Congresswoman Scanlon, David, and Bill. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, one of the very few. So if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. And here's some news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests. Whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, All you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message. That's 727-279-5339. You can also still email us your questions at questions at talkingfeds.com. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine, Associate Producer Meredith McCabe. Sound Engineering by Matt McArdle. Our Research Producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our Contributing Writers. Production Assistance by Akshaj Turbailu. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.